Jasper on house. And today I'm joined by Cheert De Witt. He is my co-host <laughs> and we're going to talk about um, symbol symbolism on this episode. Um, I chose this episode, be, uh, or sorry, I chose this topic uh, because symbolism is something that I'm very interested in. And I consider it as a language uh, into itself. And so these couple of uh, nights or days, I've been researching and writing down my dreams. I was doing it for a very long time already. Uh, but now my dreams are getting more and more intense. Uh, I don't know if this is something personal or if you, this is something that you share as well. Um, but um, I find it very fascinating and especially uh, interpreting these dreams because uh, I think we lost uh, our symbolic understanding. Um, and, and for those people who don't know what we or what I mean with symbolism, a uh, symbol is uh, something that if you, it just means that you throw things together. So you're connecting um, different associations uh, together to create a certain meaning. Uh, people might be familiar with Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, and his um, idea of the archetype. Um, an archetype is a very deep uh, symbolic image that goes back um, into our unconscious mind and it triggers our behaviors and there's a lot of different forms of symbology you have the great mother you have uh, the, the patriarchal father um, you have this the biggest one is the, the archetype of the self so there's a lot of different ones there's also the hero um, but uh, Joseph Campbell the, the Hero's Journey, people might know this one. It's pretty well known in, into, onto YouTube. There's different channels talking about this. Um, and it's something that like movies like Star Wars, but also um, Lord of the Rings or other movies, they all follow this pattern of the hero's journey, which is about, you know, ultimately ourselves and how we follow a certain path. And we encounter all these archetypes all these roles like the magician and Gandalf is that in, in, in Lord of the Rings. Um, but in uh, Star Wars, this might be Obi-Wan Kenobi or, or, or Yoda, just someone that has this mentorship. And there's like these different stages within the cycle of the hero's journey uh, with the 12 steps. Um, we all go through these steps and, and that's also a reason why we are, you know, empathizing with, uh, with uh, with the uh, with the journey, but with the person that is in the movie, you know the the, the hat player. I would uh, I don't know how to say it correctly in English. Uh, uh, but the protagonist. Yeah, the protagonist exactly. So, did you have some intense dreams, like uh, some some interesting dreams, or do you write them down, or what? About, what do you uh, I, I, I have I have interesting dreams all the time. Um, I do not write them down, and I guess that's I guess that's too bad because some of them they do get interesting. But in the moment of waking, I tend to only remember like a few sets of images and maybe a feeling or an emotion, something that went along with that. So 
for example, it, like it's the, it's the most extreme things that'll stay with me for a while. And I remember waking up, I think it was like two days ago, and I looked over at my wife and I was like, well, wow. Like I just woke up and the last few dream images that I saw was I was standing on the surface of the planet, some kind of tropical environment, like where I live on a beach or something, and looking up and through the sky, I see, uh, I see two, like, uh, like two tracers. Like, you know, I see a plane that has like a streak behind it. I saw two missiles flying next to each other. And one of them keeps going straight, but one of them actually takes a 90 degree angle and starts going right down into, this, into the ocean. And it hits the surface of the planet way beyond the horizon for me. But what I witnessed next is this massive nuclear explosion. And it's not just a mushroom cloud, but it's, a, it, it's almost like a volcanic eruption. Because it's not just a uniform mushroom cloud, it's a massive explosion that takes place. And it's literally the sensation that woke me up. So I do, I do, I do remember dreams. Uh, sometimes they, 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 they're really intense, uh, but I don't write them down. So, so is that something that you do? Do you, uh, do yeah, you write yeah. them down regularly? Yeah, I've got an app for it called uh, Awoken. And it gives you like these reality checks uh, every day. So eventually with these reality checks, you can learn to do lucid dreaming as well. And you can learn to control your dreams. But I just use this app to write my uh, dreams down. And also for memory. Journaling option in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's something that's fascinating. What what type of reality checks would would an app offer you? Um, so it just sends you a message like, uh, "Is this reality?" And then you 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 know you write you read it out loud, and it gives you different options. It's just what works for you. But these general options on how to check is like what I do. I just count on my fingers like one, two, three, four, five, and then I I. You know, I hurt myself a little bit, like uh, squeezing here. And I know, okay, I'm into reality. But this is not the only check you have to do. Like you have to also, if you walk out this door, you have to check to look behind you and then just realize, okay, this is where I came from. And then having this uh, coherency, um, these coherencies you don't have. One moment leading to the next. Yes, exactly. This is fascinating because what you're talking about is not just dreaming but it's intentionally becoming aware of the fact that you are dreaming yeah in the middle of a dream yeah and and it works both ways i would say as well that's correct yeah it works both ways because you're not just getting uh you know the, the intention is not just to get aware into your dreams but it's also to be aware in your daily life like all these things you normally won't check behind you you know if you're walking somewhere you just keep on walking, but now you're getting more aware, like, oh, this is where it came from, you know? So you get these checks and you're not just getting to these lucid dreamings, um, but you also become more lucid in your life. Um, I, I do have to say that I'm not a lucid dreamer or that I'm a professional lucid dreamer, uh, but it is something that is uh, very um, important for people to try out. Okay, so uh, what it sounds like uh, was that what you were talking about is not just regular dreaming, but it's the act of realizing that you're dreaming. So kind of becoming aware while you're asleep. Uh, is that correct? Uh, becoming aware of your 
of your dreaming yeah that you're aware uh, you become aware in, into your dreams i'm sorry and but mostly when this happens you become aware into your dreams you wake up because you get all excited and that seems to wake you up and that is like a, a little trap and so there's I think a, little... that's a universal experience right we've all had the dream where we where we're flying and then all of a sudden we realize like wait a second if i'm flying then this must be a dream and then poof you're awake yeah so so there's a little technique that you can do uh supposedly and that is looking down and uh, like twist around in your dream uh you make like these uh, round circles and because of that you uh, stay awake into your dreams without waking up because you're focusing on this point and this movement and within that you uh, don't wake up but uh, that's interesting so you're trying to distract yourself yes so yeah i guess that's all about like i remember i was heavily into trying to trying to like enter this state a few years ago Act, uh, like trying to find out what I could do to prevent myself from waking up whenever I would realize that I'm in a dream. And one of the tricks that I used to learn to, to actually help me make that realization is reality checks. Similar, like you mentioned, an app that is helping you. I actually had these two different techniques that I would try. And they were helpful to implement during the day whenever i noticed something that seemed a little odd so every day of course we see things or we hear somebody say something that seems out of character or we see something that's kind of odd you know i might see a car drive backwards down the street and we're like who is that car anytime that something like that would happen i would either uh, either i would take my finger and i would pull on it mm -hmm. or i would uh, actually hop off the ground with the intention to float. Those were my two reality checks. Mm -hmm. So in the first case, when you pull on your finger, nothing really happens, you know? When nothing really happens, you realize like I am awake, this is real life, uh, I am not dreaming. But what happens when you're dreaming and you actually pull on your finger, your finger actually stretches and stretches and it keeps getting longer and longer, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a great way to help you figure out that you're actually asleep. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is like making, like just taking a small hop, just getting your both feet off the ground and then have the intention, like the will, like I want to stay afloat in the air right now. Uh, if you have that intention and you hop in the air in your dream, that's actually what's going to happen. And you will start to fly or become weightless for me, it's never really flying. It's not like I'm a bird who flaps his wings. It's more like I'm, like the air suddenly turns to water and I can swim through it, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But by, uh, by kind of teaching myself to do these reality checks in my, uh, in my uh, awake life every now and then, I guess you'd condition yourself to repeat those actions when you're in the dream world. Because in the dream world, mad stuff is happening all the time. And you might realize like, huh? How did, how did my friend just jump over this whole house? Well, let me just pull my finger real quick. Well, let me just hop in the air and see if I can do the same. It kind of became a habit. And so I was able to use that technique for about half a dozen times that I can remember. 
uh, to intentionally like wake myself up in the dream state and start messing around, having some fun, you know, doing some yeah. good stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I personally have the view that you know our dream world is is, is like not just within our heads. Um, it is a like an ontological um, place where we can be, and that uh, you know we get these messages from there. Um, so the the important thing about lucid dreaming is like it can be for some people still uh, an ego control thing. Like they want to control their dreams, they want to control their life. But for me, it's not really about that. It's more about um, exploring this this unknown realm and and seeing and exploring our, our hidden dimensions that is within ourselves. And I think a lot of our messages and I think like dream work in itself. I was today I was doing a lot of research on this, but I couldn't find any a lot of things about this. But I do think that you know uh, writing down our dreams and engaging with our dreams and you know. Uh, conscious way that this is a spiritual path within itself because every night we dream we 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 make dmt dimethyltryptamine into our mind and we which is the, like the spurt molecule there's a good documentary about this um so we, we travel i believe that we travel actually to these other dimensions and that we need to be there and bring something back that we can share with other people but in our day and society, dreams, I know a lot of people don't, don't even remember their dreams or they don't write down their dreams but, or they don't give any importance to their dreams or they don't share their dreams. But I think we should share this because uh, there's a lot of, and maybe not just the sharing, it's also learning it for ourselves. Uh, we, we should give importance to these dreams because uh, there's a lot of messages. Yeah. But we only get these messages if we have a symbolic um, understanding, if we can learn symbolically. And so this is why I think this postcard is very important that we relearn our symbolic uh, literacy that we can read in this way again. So I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you in like 99%. Uh, however, I, I feel like when we dream, a, a, a likely interpretation of what that all means, uh, I think you might agree with this as well, is some kind of subconscious messaging that's going on where either your higher self or something else is trying to speak to you through symbols, through symbology. Uh, however, the idea that we have to share these is something that I would only agree with if it is going to help you to remember them. But in a lot of cases, and I think for most people, dreams are about as private as we can get because it's your higher self and having a dialogue with you. That's not something that is shared with you so that you can tell it to your friends. That's a very personal message on like what your spiritual evolution has to do next. And it's, it can be helpful to share that uh, but I don't think it's necessary per se. Well, that, that's where it becomes interesting then because there are some dreams that you do, well, not necessarily need to share, I would say, but the, the just the mindset that we share our dreams so that we talk more and open ourselves up and that we share these hidden side of us, that is very important. But I can understand and I also have some dreams that I wouldn't share openly with other people because 
you know they touch upon a lot of private things and these these things is you should make for yourself which which dreams you should share and which dreams you should keep for yourself but as as as, as a whole we should definitely talk more upon this because it will stress the importance of dreams and we yeah. will remember and give them credibility like said, yeah yeah, we need and, we need people that are credible to talk about their dreams as well. Yeah, and and, and also you have to know that you know you, you cannot get uh, for now we cannot you know uh, get all the interpretation ourselves like what these dreams mean. But if we talk about these dreams, we could see that there were common themes with our friends, with our family, or maybe not even people that we know. Oh, and yeah. when we talk about these things, we get aware. Like um, I did some research in like dream tele. Telepathic, uh, dream pilate, telepathy. Yeah, I cannot say this word. Um, but in any way, um, that we can have communication through dreams with other people. So maybe we'll, people will open up and see that their oh, yeah. minds are not like separated in a state, even within their dreams, but that there is, you know, uh, a shared consciousness. Uh, what Jung called the the collective unconscious. And uh, I can uh, I can confirm this personally because I put this method to the test with a friend of mine once we wanted to see um, if, if, if there was any 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 possibility that this theory was true that within dreams you can meet up with other people because there's lots of friends that share dreams there's lots of close family members and I've had personal experiences with this as well as my friend my friend actually had these dreams when they were younger, uh, which he would share with his brother. He had a younger brother, and they would actually wake up and, and share dreams. And so we made an intention to meet each other in the dream world. And it took a few tries, but we actually did manage to meet up in the dream world and then relate our experience back to each other the next day. So to do this, it wasn't simple. It actually was very difficult. Like we had to kind of, you have to anchor yourself because the, the, the dream world, I don't really think that we travel there. It's actually right here, right now. I think it's just another layer of our environment that we're not sensing with our eyes and our ears. I, when you think about all the dimensions, they're all literally at the same place at the same time. It's just different frequencies. Yeah. And so. The dream world was actually the same as the real world. It was just more magical. And mm. we have this place that we would hike past. And we decided this would be a good place for us to meet up at this crossroad in the hiking trails. Uh, we would meet up. And we did this in such a way that we both woke up in the morning, set an alarm and went back to sleep to actively be lucid dreaming. And then like he was at home and I was uh, at home so it wasn't like we were close to each other we didn't talk about this until he came to my job later that day and what we did in the dream world was very interesting because we were both barefoot and I put my big toe on his big toe and that was something that he was able to tell me in that evening which is very strange very awkward mm. and very strange but I, I knew like that there's more to the world after he told me that, I was like, you know what? That, that's wild. But that just tells us how, how connected we are and how our minds just uh, shares all these, uh, you know, all these hidden parts from ourselves. 
Yeah, um, and you mentioned archetypes before. You mentioned like we're we're, ta we're talking about symbology, and it's heavily connected to dreams in the way that dream dreams they for, they use a language. I think that it's fair to call it that. Like they use a language to speak to us, and similar people experience very similar dreams, and so they might take on different shapes. But if somebody feels very stressed in their daily life, they might have these dreams that they're being chased. And yeah. um, there's further correlations that go really into specific detail, which is kind of creepy. So whoever's listening and might have experienced this, see if this, see if this is connected to you. Because I've had this dream. Yeah, yeah me, I was about to say, uh, me too. You tell? There's a specific dream where you're aware that your teeth your what? your teeth yeah your teeth they are loose when you mess with it or you actually notice that your teeth are falling from your mouth like they're like they're like loose in your mouth and it's really interesting now many people have had this dream and it, 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 can, it, can, it can mean multiple things. We don't know exactly what it means, but there seems to be a correlation with vanity uh, as well and death. And so you, you'll find like somebody that has a dream like that, they might see, like, see it as a premonition that somebody in their family is gonna die, but then other people might interpret it as that they are too vain and that it's a symbol or that they care too much about how they look. And so you have these symbols, but symbols mean different things to different people. Yeah. But they're still symbols and they're still there and they're still yeah. some type of language. So, yeah, that, that's important. Very important mention because like the owl, and I was reading this book uh, and it said in there like uh, owls, they um, represent also different things. They can represent wisdom, but they can also represent death or darkness. And so, you know, all these different cultures, they had these stories, but uh, they all, you know, used similar language, maybe, in the sense that, you know, they had, like, Athene in the, for the Greeks, uh, had an uh, owl on their shoulder for wisdom. But they had different associations with them. And that is something that in other cultures, they had more this negative aspect. Like, you can see this with the, sh with the snake. Uh, very infamously you can see it in the bible you know like the the temptation of eden how you know we're, we're... snakes supposedly represents evil then right yeah or temptation yeah but in like eastern religions it represents wisdom and enlightenment and self-awareness or self self being self-awake and so you know like there's so many different uh it, it all depends on the context, I would say, as well. So if you have a dream with a snake in it, it doesn't mean anything like, oh, it's being negative or it's being good. But it depends on the context that it comes with. And that is something I want to expand on a little bit because if you're doing dream interpretation, and I've read into young uh, psychology and some other works as well and some, some spiritual teachers who talk about this, but I would say that you, if you dream interpret in one dream, then it would become very like unstable because a lot of these dreams, they are coexisting with each other and not just dreams, but also um, the uh, synchronicities that you have during your life as well. 
And if you tie all these things together, then you can make a much preciser interpretation than you would if you interpret one of these dreams. So a couple of nights ago, I had a dream about being into hell. I was being in an underground city and there were all these dead people falling on me. And uh, I was, and you also said, and a lot of people, they had these dreams of being chased. That's what I felt like, being chased. So yes. this dream was for me very intense, but it doesn't mean that, oh, it's hell. Oh, it's negative. No. It just no. means, okay, you're going to the underworld and you're claiming something, you know, and maybe you're running away from something. So it could mean something negative. But other dreams, like I, we talked about this before we did the podcast about me being on two islands. And for me, these themes were very, very uh, positive because I was on a tropical island and I were with all these friends and we were doing like adventures and you know, we went to the store and did some video games there and a lot of positive things. So uh, these dreams are all connected to that, but I can still cannot make a full interpretation because tomorrow or this night I will have another dream and it will tell me something. So it's a continuing thing. And that's the beauty. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the interesting thing. Like, uh, it's still evolving. And uh, so people shouldn't it's jump like into a tarot session. You don't just turn over one card, right? No. No, and it's constantly, you know, there's constantly things adding on to. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, and I've had dreams where if I'm like, mm, if I have to interpret this dream, that's gonna be weird. Uh, but then, if you think about it, like you just described, you might take like a week, and you're like, you know, in this week, I've had these four dreams that I, I can remember, and I wrote down. Like looking at these four dreams, what is this trying to tell me? And then you might be able to draw lines and connections and be like, hmm, you know, during the day at this and this point, I actually felt like I really wanted to say something, but I swallowed my words or I felt like it wasn't my place. Or maybe you felt like like really bad at a certain point in the day, but you stuffed that feeling away. I do believe that in my dreams, these emotions, they might come up because they need to be resolved. Yeah. And they might show themselves to you in like a scary dream or in a chase sequence where somebody's trying to get to you and you're actually trying to get away. Maybe these are strongly connected to our emotions. I, mm -hmm. I definitely think that I've, like, I've experienced a lot that would support that idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's also the thing with, uh, with hell. Like I don't hear get a lot exposed to negativity. Uh, negativity because i'm here on a farm and the vibe is pretty good although there are some things of course like some drama but you always have that but it's not very negative yes. in, in in the in the sense that you know in our world today with this pandemic it's very negative so because i don't get exposed to this because i don't watch any news and stuff like that i don't get exposed to it but but my mind still has to so for me that could be an interpretation on why i had that dream also you know, in a wider context, uh, not just connected to my own personal life, yeah. but as, as how, what we're going through in our society and what needs to be faced and what needs to be learned. Like someone has to go in the underworld and restore uh, balance uh, or like in the Egyptian myth, you know, when, when uh, Horus went, and went down to the underworld for, for his father to retrieve his father, all these things. And I was, I was talking about earlier that, all these different civilization they they have these similar themes they had uh, 
all yes. this underworld and and that these teams you can still are still living teams because we still dream about them uh we still see them oh, we turn them into also. symbols that we still use right yeah you think about it we 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 i think that's probably where symbols come from uh like the the, the, the symbols that we use they've been passed down like they're they're, they're the oldest language we have it's older than any any type of lettering that, that we have yeah yeah, so that, that's the thing about there as well. I would say so. If you if you look at letters, uh, where we're using the grammar uh, language these days, or the phonetic language, uh, but the if you intersect these uh, words, you get letters, and letters are nothing more than 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 symbols themselves. Um, so true. So and so you put them together, and you create another symbol. Yeah, yeah, and and. You know, the people, a lot of people won't notice, but there's an esoteric structure of our alphabet. And um, so the number uh, G is the seventh letter uh, and also coincides with God or a generative principle, or there's a lot of things that go with number uh, with G. Uh, but um, if you put like 24, is this correct? 24 letters of the alphabet. I don't remember. Uh, 26. 26. Oh, yeah, 26. 26 well, if you, in the Netherlands, at least. Yeah, if you put down, if you get the uh, retract seven, uh, you get to the letter T. And the letter T I got here on my sleeve, which was for the Egyptians, the Ankh. And this is the three way, the Trinity, and it represents man and female. And there's like a crossroad and these two on the side, they represent the children, uh, a daughter or, or a son. So you have the female here on top and then the male on the, on the bottom. And then you have the children and this T and in, in, in the uh, Norse mythology, they had the Thor hammer. Um, <laughs> This is the, you know, the, the I don't know the how many, uh, 19th letter of the alphabet, something like that. I think, 19th, yeah, yeah, that would make sense, 19th. I think, I think though, like when, when you're saying, when you're talking about the Ankh and about your interpretation of it or the interpretation you're describing, like the Ankh is a very, very powerful symbol, uh, but it also has many different interpretations not wrong right yeah 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 and so the ankh might 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 represent a key to some people mm -hmm. it might represent a staff or some or, or some 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 energy container to somebody else and might yeah. contain like a letter in the alphabet and i do think that we have the ability to give multiple roles multiple tasks to symbols and they're yeah. constantly changing as well oh um, for sure so nowadays if i see if i see an ankh I, I don't necessarily, uh, I, like I, like a bit, it has actually come to represent a certain set of people uh, in America who have kind of reconnected with their African heritage and are using the young thing entirely different. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, no, no, it's interesting now that the, the, the Ankh seems very similar to, in, in, when you look at hieroglyphs in Egypt, and the, and the the places that the Ankh shows up, 
it's being held in the exact same way as you find that little purse that's being held by the Anunnaki and by the figures on the Gozeki Tepe uh, uh, site in Turkey. And you find the same thing in like in America. When you look at these ancient depictions of gods that would come down to earth, they would all be holding this little pouch, a little, little square with a little loop. Yeah. And it seems like in the Egyptian, uh, in the Egyptian hieroglyphs, this was replaced with the Ankh. So maybe there's a connection with the, that symbology as well there. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's definitely interesting to talk about that and kind of theorize, but it will always be the interpretation of this generation. I, I don't I don't completely agree with that because uh, like the letter D is another good example. Uh, we okay. use it for deconstruction. We use it for the devil. Uh, we use it for destruction. Uh, we use it for a lot of things that are, um, you know, uh, you cannot intersect the word God, but if you would, then you would say the generation, the generative uh, operation and destroy. You can see that in Hinduism as well. <clears throat> and um, so these three um, principles, they work in a universal way. So it's not something that is just within our generation. You mentioned the African Americans. Um, a lot of uh, African Americans are part of the nation of Islam or the five percenters. And they have this alph alphabetic structure as well they, they intersect all these words uh, like peace dog they say uh, dog is just uh, god turned around um, but islam they say like the is just like uh, the i self lord and ma and master i self law and master and so they make of every letter they make the uh, make it a certain per a certain meaning uh, another one might be allah it's like arm, arm, leg. Oh, sorry, Dave. The camera has to switch me. Yeah, arm, leg, leg, arm, supreme hat. Uh, that's another one they say. So for them, these letters they all have their own uh, association with them. Instead of like what we're used to, okay, we we tie these letters together, and then we have a word, and then we have a meaning. But they said no. The letters themselves, they have a, their own meaning. And the so is there anybody right or wrong there, in your opinion? No, no, but it's a different understanding. This is just an esoteric, this is the exoteric side. So the exoteric side is what we use when we do our finances, what we do when we communicate, when we uh, do all these general things or we, from day to day. Uh, but if we use it in an esoteric sense, so for a magical person's uh, reason, like uh, the, the reason why runes were invented, for example, they followed the same yeah. pattern. They were also ideographs. Um, so they hide it, uh, meanings within certain letters, but you can also use these letters at the firm award. So a lot of Vikings, they write down their name on a, on a sword, for example, but it wasn't just their name. It hold these powers of these letters as well. Um, but it's a collection the, of symbols, I guess. Would, would that yeah. be similar to the way the Japanese language is structured? Yeah, yeah. Well, it follows the same pattern, but they use it like uh, the exoteric and esoteric is intertwined there uh, because okay. esoteric only forms when people uh, have to 
hide uh, the knowledge uh, instead of like putting it openly. So that's why, you know, on the exoteric level, people know um, how to use language and we can write uh, letters down, even though that's pretty modern in like uh, a lot of people couldn't read for, for hundreds of years. Uh, but you know that's that's a plus but and uh, still this esoteric structure and what i'm fo focusing more upon and which i find more interesting uh, which is the magical side uh, of language uh, you can see this also within uh, the hebrew language where they have these uh, simple letters uh, for for yahweh for example but also in Arabic, where they write from right to left, we use different hemispheres. Um, so how we look upon with this view on language is using another hemisphere. We talked in the previous episode about this. Um, yes. That, you know, the exoteric way of using these words is on the left hemisphere and the esoteric is more on the right hemisphere. Um, but I would say that symbolism itself is using both hemispheres so you can still use it to communicate, but you can also use it to get a definition or a deeper meaning or use it for magical purposes. And use, you know, um, somebody, Ura Linda, you recommended it me once and they uh, use this runic script in there as well. And this is all used for the same purpose. Yeah, and what, very fascinating, right? That script that's like based on circular designs. Yeah, based upon shape of geometry. Just if like that, the if, if that is legit, and of course, like 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 you said in the previous podcast, it's a debatable source. However, it is a very convincing debatable source. If they are correct, it would basically mean that our ancestors were responsible for for probably one of the first lettering systems out there, because that script in the book was definitely what the Phoenician was based on. And the Phoenicians, yeah. of course, were the ones who started the whole Mediterranean civilizations and the writing of that. So, yeah, yeah, that, and that's, that, that would be fascinating. Yeah, that's something that I disagree with a lot of scholars on, even though I'm not a scholar uh, of history itself. But for me, it would be more logical to assume that language is based upon sacred geometry because that is something that is already found within nature and that is the language of nature itself and that we imitated this language and that's what runes do i will show this in, in the podcast with a picture on how the normal runes are based upon a sacred geometry and if this script is ready it uses a different form like the circle but it's still based upon sacred geometry um, what type of sacred geometry are we talking about there are we talking about uh, the, the, the uh, root of life or fibonacci sequence or like what well, well, the, in the in the Uralinda, they say that uh, that's the uh, seed of life that they you know with the uh, six cardinal lines uh, within a circle, uh, but the traditional elder futark um, runics runes of the Norse Vikings, they were based upon the eight um, eight, eight pointed star, and if you use this eight pointed star in uh, fill some lines in and others not, you can form all the uh, Elder Futark signs in their alphabet or alphabet, I don't know, Elder Futark. Um, That's so, fascinating. Yeah, so for me, it would be, I, for me, this is what I would assume 
about history because history is mostly assumptions. It's and least it's his story, right? Yeah. So, but for me, it would be more logical to assume is that the Phoenicians interacted uh, with the Norse or with the Frisians, and that they adopt this, adopted this system and and developed their own Phoenician. Uh, for, for what we use today are the phonetic alphabet from this because the Phoenician alphabet, what we use today is not based on uh, sacred geometry directly, although it uh, adopts a lot of uh, similarities. Um, there is, there is some, and that's what I mean with the esoteric uh, alphabet, that there is some things coming out and that we can see that is based upon some older, more esoteric structures which are i like feel like it's almost fair because we're, we're referring to these uh these things as esoteric but because i would say over 95 percent of people don't know about these meanings it's hidden knowledge which would classify like hidden esoteric knowledge i think classifies as occult so mm -hmm. it would be occult knowledge yeah yeah and occult just means hidden yeah. Yes, exactly. But you think that's uh, it's fair to call it by its name. Uh, a lot of people that kind of turned off by that word, especially if they have a Christian background, you're gonna think that uh, you know uh, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna become some kind of Satanist. But it's not like that. Like you just said, it literally just means hidden. A lot mm -hmm. of stuff is hidden. So even though um, you know most of our friends growing up, they might have been raised Christian like us, not knowing that all of the days in the week are named after different planets and different gods from our past. People don't even think about it. They're like, oh, Mamba, oh, Monday. Like, oh, you think it has something to do with the moon? You think, you think so? Oh, that's interesting. You think like Thursday has something to do with Thor? I think so. Do you think Friday has to do with Freyr and, and the whole concept of, uh, of fertility? We have like Saturday based on Saturn or like the god and the planet. But that's knowledge that you might hear about once as a little kid and then forget about. But to me, that always stuck because it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Even though, would you say that classifies as occult knowledge as well? Yeah. And the thing about uh, if you know this form of uh, symbolic language, you can do two things. You can protect yourself against uh, spells, spell casting. And that is what, you know, what is used in grammar. Um, grammar is something we learn in, in school, uh, but this is something you can use for uh, influencing people. And the social engineers, the people that are influencing this uh, society on a mass level, they know very well how to use these languages on this way. So they use mm -hmm. these uh, you know, the deconstructions like disciple, for example, you think, yeah, disciple is a good word. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples, but it should be disciples, you know, like uh, the followers of God. So all these words are used, I would say, for, for a specific reason to mislead people. And uh, that's why yeah, have I have them take part in rituals that they don't even know they're a part of. Yeah. And, and the other purpose is that you can spell cast for yourself. So, you can influence people as well. Uh, but, you know, you, that's, if you manipulate people, that's another thing. But um, the, the first person you should influence is, of course, yourself. And so you can get control over your life through uh, learning this form of language. 
uh, yeah. using words in a, in a, in a magical sense, um, oh, using yeah. the very powerful to reprogram yourself, um, be applicable with your word. Like in a, there's a book, uh, the four agreements. Um, and the first agreement is, uh, be impeccable by your word. Don Michel, I think his name is. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, words are very powerful, and you can see in the Bible as well. Word, word is uh, the first. First, uh, there was the word, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or sound. I think. I think that means sound. First, there was sound. Of course, there was vibration and frequency. Yes. Yeah. But um, no, you're right. And just taking one or two steps back, I'd like to mention this in case your viewers haven't noticed. When when these social engineers co-opt language uh, without our knowledge, they can trick us into taking part in things that if we kind of knew the meaning, kind of knew the intention behind it, we, did not want, we would not want to take part at all. And an interesting version or example of that would be an election and voting. Because I don't know if you've ever heard this expression before, but when you vote, in English, it's called casting a ballot. You cast your ballot. That's what it's mm. called when you vote. However, casting a ballot is a ritual. And it is a Satanist ritual. So it's very interesting. Why would we use that language to mm. describe some type of action, which we think is very normal. You know, every country has their elections and they vote. Why would you call that after a magical ritual, though? It kind of seems like you're doing something to shift energy or power and focus it somewhere just like any magical ritual would yeah and so we're taking part without realizing because we don't know about the meanings of all the words we use yeah and um, something sorry no 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 yeah you were so you're right there i think that um for me uh, I, I i kind of learned about this through the, the, the simple phrase that we use when you when you say um Say when you are a little kid and you want to act like you're putting a magic spell on somebody. You say, uh, abracadabra, hocus pocus, pilates pus. Mm. You know, I wish that you were a frog or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I discovered that abracadabra is actually Babylonian, it's ancient language. And it actually translates to, as I speak, I create... I started to think, well, why would we remember that? Like, why would we remember specifically those words? And why would kids be saying those words? Like, what is it now? Like, at least 6,000 years later? Like, why? Would, like, why? And it kind of it then started to draw some connections for me with the idea of law of attraction, about affirmations, about thoughts turning into reality and, and you know, everything kind of starts as a thought you think about the chair you sit in right now or the computer you were on at one point that wasn't there but it was literally born in the mind of somebody in the shape of a thought it's like i want to have a chair that can spin around mm. and it has wheels or that can incline backwards yeah. or that is covered in skin of cow like all of those were ideas that were like at first come up with and so everything in that way starts out the same. And I, I always thought that was, that, that was interesting, but when you really look into it, 
then there's a rabbit hole that opens up. So I, I, th I think you would agree with that as well, right? You have your own interpretations. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the symbols, they speak to your uh, subconscious. So if you speak in language, you can still, okay, this is what you said, you know, and if you speak, you speak a different language than I did, and I could like, what, what is he saying right now? I cannot understand. So I would use my subconscious for all the context or for all the words that sound similar to things that I already know. And this is how I learned Spanish mostly through context. You can like get a lot of these words that you're not familiar with. A lot of words like English and Spanish are pretty similar. Uh, but the thing always is with uh, uh, symbolic language, if you don't know it, then you get influenced by it. It speaks to your subconscious. And so if you know, sub, if you know symbolic language, then you can become an intermediary. Because I think language forms functions. In, it, this is the purpose of language. Like it is the intermediate intermediate position between your consciousness and reality. So we use words to intermediate between these things. You know, we call this that. You know, a plant uh, whatever. So we objectify and we we become. It's all about relationship. Especially, I'm I'm an animist. I will call myself an animist. I believe that everything is alive and we interact with our environment through language but also of course with feelings and with other uh, aspects of ourselves um, but if we are not if we don't if we count out the symbolic language then we get influenced and you can see it in movies you know it's double-sided um, movies very strongly in movies it's used yeah but for some people it can initiate someone you know, I, uh, it can awaken you. Like if I watch Star Wars, for me, it's very powerful. There's a lot of symbology that I use to inspire myself. A lot of people, they get into this complex. Okay, there has to be a hero. Yeah, we talk, I talked earlier about the hero's journey. There has to be yeah. a hero and he has to do everything for us and or this one person that saves us all. And then you're trapped. Then you're trapped wow. again. And you miss all this richness of the symbology. And, uh, you get attached to the to the message instead of like applying it in your own way yeah. and knowing that we need each other instead of just one person to, to you know create a solution yeah no it's true when you think about the stories that humans tell like there's only a few stories that people tell and they tell them in different ways with different characters but uh, so many movies and so many stories going all the way back to the epic of Gilgamesh are basically the hero's journey it's a it's a metaphor or it's a it's an aphorism it's something that we just keep recycling over and over again yeah you mentioned the uh, metaphor i i was just thinking about that uh, because uh, in the julian james uh, book uh, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the and the breakdown of the bicameral mind which i mentioned in the previous episode it talks about uh, metaphor and how language develops through that so you know there's a lot of things that we i cannot explain right now from word to word having a literal interpretation for it or a little more meaning sorry so i will use metaphors to describe it uh, but the metaphor they have two parts they have the fairy friend and the metaphere if i say this correctly i i will correct it in the editing if not uh, you said the first one again the first second one was metaphere no and the first one was now the para friend and the meta uh, fear but i will 
put this in the uh, in, in the editing because I'm not really 100% sure if I said this correctly. But okay. the idea is that this one part that you want to describe, uh, that's I think the pattern here. Uh, and then you have the other side, uh, the words that you're using to describe this. So words that we use right now with sticks, something sticks, I, I use a stick to stick someone. And uh, those are all uh, came from this sense, like uh, they, they were all concepted in, in this way um, that we, okay, I, I want to explain something, but I'll use the objects that I'm already familiar with, like a stick. Yeah. And then I'll say what I want to do with this stick. I will stick someone with this stick, you know? So yes. the movement describes the object and that is these two elements of, of a metaphor and how we, you know, we develop a new and new more language because language is not something that stagnates. It's constantly developing and you can see this in the youth or within hip hop, they have like the, what they call slang, you know, they, they have their own language because they want to, don't want the police to hear everything that they say. So they develop their own language and in that way they can still be free and still, uh, talk in a, in a more free sense um, and they can develop their because if you speak English you you, you talk the language of the oppressors and you get stuck well, yeah, you can be censored yeah and they said exactly the because uh, because the people that the fact checkers on Facebook and Instagram they all speak English so if you're trying to, if you're trying to like set up some coup against your government and you're all chatting with each other in English everybody's going to be able to read that yeah. however if you uh, if you get a little group together and you start speaking Frisian with each other, mm. I, I can guarantee you Facebook has nobody in their employment in the fact-checking department that speaks Frisian. So you can type away. Nobody will ever really understand what it says there. Maybe some, some inquiring Dutchman would be able to read that and be like, mm, sounds like they're talking about this and that. But language is a way to really either be imprisoned or be completely free. Completely free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like there's a way. Like, um, like language is a form of expression, and so just like dancing is a form of expression and represents freedom, a language can too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You also mentioned that uh, in, in a talk that we did uh, a very long time ago, where you said. Uh, there's a lot of our language is actually through body movement, right? So a lot of our language are still not even like verbally. There's a lot of non-formal communication that we have to, to um, not necessarily talk about as well, but I mean, uh, that was oh, your yeah. kind in, you know? There's so many ways that we communicate outside of the words that we use. And a good example of that is something everybody has experienced once or twice where you, you receive a text message from somebody and you feel like the person is angry at you or you feel like something is going on and it actually isn't. But when we just send each other a few lines of text, we read that in our own voice. We can attach all kinds of meanings, all kinds of interpretations to it. And so even the way that we use our voice carries information. We can kind of make something sound a little higher in the end to yeah. indicate a question. Or yeah. we could use our voice to say like, no, this is it. I am not willing to discuss this. Or um, 
we uh, we we inform our language with with our with our facial expressions, of course. So yeah, there there was also a tribe that speaks with whistles. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There's, the there's parts of Turkey as well. In Turkey, there's a there's a group of people that communicate, and they actually whistle. The they like can, they can basically they can talk to each other in full sentences through whistling. But the language is sadly disappearing. For some reason, you know, people don't like this level of freedom, where you have a language that cannot be censored, that cannot be understood. Yeah. And so, they're like they're trying to encourage those children, don't use that. You sound silly. You sound stupid when you whistle with your friends or with your family. Just speak Turkish. And it's like, nah, nah. There's some agenda going on there. Just like they're trying to get rid of the Frisians. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to learn a language like that. I do believe like the Sufis also has it. Uh, they have a way in which they use frequencies within their sp within their communications, and these frequencies, these stones, they use to you know get you into certain altered states. Um, so I think that you know we we have to revitalize those things into our daily language because. That brings in together what, what I say with magical way of, of using language. Uh, we can trigger people into certain uh, emotions and we can use words in a healing uh, for healing purposes. Uh, but, you know, especially in our countries, we talk way too much. Uh, when I was in Peru, we were at three kilometers at height. So there's a lot less oxygen there. So you don't talk all day, you know. And the people, the local people, they don't, they don't talk all day. But the things that they do say, they're all meaningful. They're all like kind and all like, you know, some things that, that are valuable. And so I think we have to use those words in the same sense. Um, here, we don't talk a lot as well. Uh, people here are more. There's, a, a, there's, a, there's two types of people. You know, there's those people who just have to say something. And then there's some people who have some things to say. Mm. And yeah. I think that there's a difference there because people don't realize the tool or the weapon or, or, the, or, or, or the power that their voice actually is. Because if you learn how to speak multiple languages, like you're, 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 you're going up in the things you can do in this world, like it's just getting better and better. If you learn how to use your intonation to manipulate people in conversation, you're learning even more. If you know how to use certain words with certain people, it's basically approaching a level of manipulation where it starts to seem like magic because there's nothing happening. People can observe you. They don't see anything, but with your voice, you can make so much happen. Mm. So I don't even think that it has to be conscious. I think that my wife can speak to me and use a certain tone or a frequency to make me feel a certain way about what she's saying without doing that consciously just like we might do that in conversation as well so it's uh it's 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 it's, it's a real thing yeah i've and heard that 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 if you if your mother speaks to you that it already has a therapeutic uh influence on you uh because mm -hmm. of the, the tone of your mother so imagine if you can learn how to speak to somebody in the tone of their mother hmm that's something to think about uh yeah. All right, let's, uh, for me, uh, I would like to take a break and uh, we can come back in the second part. Sounds That's good, good. let's reconvene. I think I'm actually gonna change locations.
So right. uh, yeah, perfect. Next time we'll get online, uh, we'll, uh, we'll be from a different spot. Yeah. All right. Keep it posted. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the second part. Um, this part, we're going to talk about mythology. And uh, there's a lot of different ones. Um, I looked, did a little bit of research during the break on the, how many there actually are, but uh, I couldn't find the, the quantity. But uh, there's a lot of Greek mythology is the most popular ones, but uh, there's also a lot of other ones. And uh, is there actually a Frisian one? Do you know? Uh, there's a few uh, mythological uh, uh, stories that I know of. I guess the reason why we would have most of Greek mythology is because they were pretty prolific, pretty serious about writing things down and, and, and kind of saving them for the future generation. And a lot of mythologies have actually been passed down uh, like around the campfire, you know? Yeah, uh, orally. Uh, yeah, exactly. But... Let's see, the Frisian uh, mythological stories that I remember include this, this, uh, this spirit, this female spirit that also is, uh, is once again a symbol uh, because you find it in all, from, from all the way from Ireland to Russia. It's like this part of the world has this symbology around female spirits that are connected to water. And so when you're near a body of water in the past, they would tell you that you'd have to watch out for the bit of even, which means the white wives or the white women that you might, uh, might've heard about. You know, you yeah. know, when you grow up in the free, free slang, you might've heard about them. It's very similar to folklore of Ireland that talks about the Banshee, you know, a Banshee's whale you supposedly hear this woman who is screaming or yelling or moaning across the water and you can kind of hear that and become and come become like very much obsessed with the sound and follow it into the water where you're drowned by the spirit same uh, in russia i think in russia it's actually called rusalki and it's also this woman that lures you into the water and then drowns you hmm. which is something that i guess also shows up in the story of uh is it Perseus? Yeah, the, the, Odyssey, the Odyssey, where you have yeah. the sirens that call the men and they make them mad, go mad as well. Yeah, so maybe there's a connection there. I guess that's mm -hmm. a symbology that yeah, we would have in our own culture. It's called the Vitavivum, and I think it's uh, very similar to the description of the Banshee spirit. Hmm. Well, and another one might be the uh, which I'm supposedly connected to with my ancestry, the Grutepier. Grutepier, uh, yeah. Well, he was maybe... a mythological character, but the stories around him have become mythology. Yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I guess there's not. You're saying uh, you're, you're, you're related to him? You think that there's a connection in your family that you can trace back? Yeah, my mother uh, came came from Kimsford, where uh, and Grutepier uh, was born from, oh, uh, yeah, her, yeah. her ancestry. But uh, I'm connected to his sister, so not necessarily to him, but his sister. Uh, but I don't know. The, I don't have a full documentation, so if people would ask, like, uh, give me the proof, then I could not. But uh, oh, so for people who have never heard of Grutepier, which is Frisian for Great Great Pete or Great Great Pier, it's like a name. Uh, as a, like, uh, it's a very big man. Can you tell uh, me a little bit about what you know about Grutepier? 
Yeah, well, he was a mighty warrior mm -hmm. that fought against the Dutch uh, about eight, no, I think 1300, something in 1300, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but he fought against the Dutch and he had this saying, you know, it's like a poem and Witte Brene Green Cheese, who that not says again, is Geno Brugte Fries. Yes, yes, I and, remember. Yeah, and so he was like a pirate and he said this towards people who are from the Dutch to see if they're from the Netherlands or from Frisia and if they could say this, like the, the poem that I just said, then he wouldn't kill you. But if you couldn't, then he would throw you overboard or do whatever with you. Uh, exactly. But his sword, sword is yeah. two meters long. So I will put in a picture of, of this sword, but it's... Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real crazy. sword. It's a, it actually still exists. Yeah, I think it's like in the Leeuwarden or Snake Gemeentehuis. It was on display yeah. when I was younger. So what I know about this character is similar to what you said. Like is this man who came from Kimsworth. He was a Frisian fighting, I guess, against the Dutch. But I, I think I think that this conversation would benefit from a little bit of context because uh, it wasn't like the Frisians were ever at war with the Dutch but there was this kind of resistance going on. From, from what I know about history, you have this time where people used to own their land, farm on it and take care of themselves and then pass on their land to their ancestors. And uh, that's how ownership of the land was in Friesland as well. This was similar across all of Europe until you started getting like lords. So um, I guess you have these, the, um, these people that come in that start offering protection because they have soldiers uh, in exchange for food from the farms. But there was this thing going on where basically everybody was forced to give up their land to some lord who was collecting large amounts of land and then they would still be allowed to live there and farm there but, but they would have to give like all of their food to the lord and then the lord would give a little bit of it back basically mm. and this was a form of slavery uh, and and the frisians were some of the last people in mainland europe to resist this change from uh, it's a feudal system that's what it's called so yeah. we used to have freedom and then they moved into feudalism where, you know, um, a lord with a big castle would protect all of the surrounding lands, even though that land used to own, belong to the farmers. Now the farmers can't protect it anymore. They depend on the lord to protect them with his soldiers. But there's a problem here because the, the scenario was often staged. And a lot of times somebody that wanted to gain control of an area would actually use money to hire mercenaries to then attack these uh, villages in a certain area over and over again, like a few years in a row, light their homes on fire, steal all of their belongings. And then he would approach these people with the offer. It's like, hey, I can use my men to protect you from these horrible outside barbarians that keep destroying your home and stealing your food yeah uh, all you'd have to do is turn over your land to me and i will allow you to keep living here forever as long as you give me set percentage of whatever you make and the horrible thing was that if people would agree to this 
the soldiers that would protect them were actually the mercenaries who had lit their house on fire the few years before mm -hmm. because they created a problem and they offered the solution. And Frisians kind of saw through this uh, and because all of Europe had already had this happen to them, the Frisians wanted to resist. They did not like feudalism. They did not want to give up the ownership of their land and their farms. And so we actually refused this. Uh, along with uh, the whole wave of making everybody into Christians and then uh, giving up your land, we were fighting this. And Greta Pir, he was one of the leaders of our people in this resistance. He did not want to take part in this. And so uh, they actually uh, raised this army of, them, uh, of farmers to, to defend themselves against the mercenaries who would come in uh, to, to pillage them. And because the system didn't work, because they didn't ask the Lord, please protect us, but they're actually defending themselves, things got really rough. And our culture became a pirate culture because all the surrounding areas, which all belong to the Lords and all of the religious folk, they said, okay, fine. So these people won't come to us. They won't beg us for help. They won't uh, give up their land. So we're just going to boycott them. Basically, what they're doing with countries that they don't like right now, they're going to sanction you. They're going to say, well, Frisians are just not welcome in the marketplace in Amsterdam anymore. And they're not welcome in the marketplace in London either. They're not welcome in Germany. They're not welcome anywhere. Uh, you can't trade with Frisians. And if we do find you trading with Frisians, then we're going to treat them uh, you just the way that we treat them. And so it forced us to become pirates. Nobody wanted to trade with us anymore. So what do we do? Well, we still need stuff. So we started using our boats to just sail into towns, beat some people over the head and just take whatever we needed and get out of there. And it makes sense when you look at it in that context, but it allowed the Dutch to kind of paint a picture of Frisians as barbarians and pirates and people that needed to be put down, even though they had already been trying to do that for like a hundred years. And Greta Pier supposedly was one of these freedom fighters. I think he was actually on the walls of the snake. Uh, the, the like cities used to have walls with water around them. And this story of the poem you told me uh, was told to me in such a way that he would actually be at the gate that would allow entry into my hometown of Snake back in the day, because at 6 p.m. each day, the city gates would close. Nobody could come in or out of the city except if they were able to pass that test. So you would sail up to the waterport in Snake, the water gate, through which your boat would be allowed entry into the canal system in the town. But if you weren't able to pronounce I think they would just shoot you from the window or something like that. But at least you wouldn't get into the city. Because yeah. I know there would be spies that might want to like attack the city and open the gates from the inside. That's what I heard. So is that confirm what you heard as well? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not that familiar with, with, with everything that's surrounding with the beer. Uh, one thing I do find very astonishing um, is how he fought practically with a sword that is like that long. Because yeah. I've seen a lot of medieval like uh, where they react to the uh, way in which they fought back then. Uh, but fighting with a two-meter sword is uh, very uh, ineffective unless you're very strong and very uh, long. But um, the other thing uh, that 
I also find interesting in, uh, about your story is uh, I think it bridges into how we got con colonized uh, in Frisia into the Dutch society yeah. and how we lost a lot of our, you know, our own way of uh, looking at our tradition and uh, how we look upon uh, our Frisian language. Although maybe it's not as connected with mythology anymore, but I do find it very important and very interesting how we got separated. And I guess it, it is, it ties in because mythology is part of tradition and you know we yeah these stories that we tell each other about the, the historical events you know each time that we tell the story it changes a little bit some details fade maybe some are added and so over time even our historical accounts become mythological or mythical in a way uh, like i would say that it's fair to call the history of greta Pira a legend because we can't really confirm anything. The only thing we can confirm is that he did have a massive sword. Uh, there's testimony. Uh, so there's word. People say that they saw him on the battlefield decapitate multiple people with one blow on more than one occasion. So this man must have been enormous to lift mm -hmm. that sword and to apply that much force. Uh, he was definitely uh, somebody to be feared. And I think that's why we still know about him because he was such a special person that they made legends about him. Yeah. Which, which in turn, I guess, is our Frisian mythology in a way. If you look yeah. at it, we even named some star signs after his sword. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, Sibran de Boren, uh, for example. Uh, Sibran de Boren uh, goes back to uh, this other story where uh, I'm sure you like we mentioned uh, in the first half of this uh, this podcast that many people are familiar with the story of the lord of the rings mm -hmm. uh, but not a lot of people understand that it's not just a story but it was actually a mythology that was created by tolkien to replace the history of england that was lost after the French kept invading it and actually put a French king on the throne a few times. Every time that happened, they would kind of get rid of English history. And so even though when you go to Norway or Sweden or Denmark, you can read and read and read about trolls and about giants and about elves and about uh, dragons, whatever, um, that stuff is not a part of English history because it's been destroyed or ruined or forgotten. And I think that uh, it's interesting because these connections go back to Friesland as well. Yeah, and there's but, uh, this character called uh, called Sigurd. Sigurd was a dragon slayer. Yeah, Beowulf. Uh, is this the legend of Beowulf? No, uh, this is a separate legend, uh, uh, but okay. similar and similar in, in in its story. So Beowulf is is a story around the same time, but. Yeah. This is the story of Sigurd, the, the dragon slayer, and his Frisian wife, Brunhild. And Brunhild then supposedly is the mother of the character Aslaug from the Viking show, which is uh, Ragnar's second wife. Ah, okay. So it's interesting ah, right. that we talk about historical characters that are slaying dragons. That's mythology. Mm. But it's definitely Frisian. 
Yeah, I got a book of uh, Beowulf that is uh, translated by Tolkien. So I know that Tolkien is very into a lot of different mythological stories. And yep. Beowulf is also partly about Frisia as well. Yes, uh, it's mentioned multiple times. There's characters that are from there. And I think another thing uh, should be mentioned that is not part of Frisia anymore, but in Drenthe they have these Hunebedden. And then with the Hunebedden, they have these stories of, you know, the Hunebed is called uh, means uh, the resting place of giants. And we're talking about Gutepir, and he's also pretty big. So, and it's not just with uh, the Frisian mythology or with the Hunebed or whatever, but with a lot of these different mythological or mythological stories, we hear about the giants or about um, dragons. I know a guy called Mutt Fossil University on YouTube. And he talks about how these beings could be real instead of like just metaphorical, but yeah. they actually could have existed. But I don't know. I well, will there's put a, that there's a reason to think that, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting subject to touch upon because I've had that thought as a child where I was like, well, if dragons never existed, then why do we have little dragons? like lizards and crocodiles and why does every culture not just europe but every culture talk about dragons they might call it a feathered serpent in south america uh, and they might show it in a different way in china but everywhere they're talking about dragons yeah and so i thought you know what maybe they did exist a long time ago uh but then i found this this uh there's very interesting possible explanation for this that has to do with the Silk Route. Because the Silk Route is, of course, the trade connection between the Asia and Europe. But the Silk Route passes through uh, a part of the desert in Mongolia. And this desert is very interesting because, uh, how do I put this? The, in the desert, there are fossil remains that have been preserved very well because it's so dry there it's the driest place on earth i think mm. uh, that you have these perfectly conserved fossils of dinosaurs and these dinosaur fossils they are under the sand but then the sand is constantly shifting and so when these silk traders would pass through the desert it wouldn't be uncommon for those shifting sands and winds to expose one of the skeletons of a dinosaur partially. So when you imagine like a triceratops has like a bird beak and a giant skull, but then the body that almost seems to resemble some type of lion, it's very easy to think, oh, wait a second, maybe that when they found a skeleton like that, that looked completely fresh because it was so well preserved in the desert, and they find it has a, a bird beak and like the body of a rhino, but it's like twice or three times the size. They must have thought, oh my God, because these animals still be living in this desert. Is it safe for us to be here? And so they might think of a griffin, you know, which has the body of a lion and the face of a bird. Yeah. And so there's a possible explanation for these types of creatures. If you think about a different interpretation of skeletal remains. Yeah. Yeah, well, it takes a lot, a lot of shifting in our consciousness to 
uh, get it to not just see it as something mythological, but uh, maybe that there is some literal truth in these stories. Um, some idea that you can see in Lord of the Rings is that the world started out in as something very magical because it was close to creation and to the source. And eventually, as time came on, uh, we get more and more lost in this mundane Solidified world. Solidified in matter, maybe. Yeah. And I think that why we discard all these things that we're discussing mostly in our Western society. But if we did any genuine research, and, and that's why I would keep an open mind to these things, because a lot of these ancient civilizations, they all speak about giants. And they couldn't, they, maybe it isn't literally. Maybe it's in the Bible too. In, yeah, but maybe mm -hmm. they were giants in like technology or in, in the way of their seeing the world or... It doesn't have to be literal, but I, it could be. So let's just it keep it up in mind. Oh yeah, I, like for me, like it's very, it's like uh, one of the one of the parts that is so interesting about uh, about the Bible and its historical accounts is that it does refer to these uh, these Nephilim, which are supposedly like uh, you know the children of, um, of angels that came down to earth uh, to, to procreate with uh, human women. Um, now it would be cool if they just give birth to really big people or giants, the men that turn into giants. But the stories that go along with this in the Bible always talk about them like they're horrible, they're cannibals, they they, they eat people and then and, and they're they're you know they're they're evil monsters. Uh that's interesting because that's the exact same description that the Native Americans give of the giants that they encountered in North America. Yeah. Like, no, they're very tall, they have red hair, and they eat us. They're cannibals. And so the, uh, the Indian uh, Native Americans, they actually have these whole stories about how they eradicated the giants from North America, how they had to literally combine whole tribes to go and meet these giants and kill them. And then they would bury them in these mounds. And those mounds have been discovered all over America but are some way always hush hush about it. And then the nine foot skeletons that they find in there always disappear within a few days. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Some things that I'm very interested in are some modern legends. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, night, uh, the Malta and with the uh, Knights of Malta. Not, not just the Knights of Malta. I mean, the, there's a castle there called the castle of giants. And there's like caves underneath that uh, castle. And there was supposed to be a person that went into those caves uh, without any permission, just illegally, and eventually get deeper and deeper. And supposedly she saw these giants walking in there. And I looked up with her and she was very scared. And she went up uh, to the service again and was, uh, but you know, it's uh, something you have to accept based upon their words. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I find it fascinating how these uh, stories still continue. Uh, and uh, there, I think there's a lot of suppression in this. Uh, you can see in the movie um, Indiana Jones where they have this scene of all these boxes, you know, under the museum of all these archaeological findings which they don't put out openly. And I think a lot of those things uh, could be uh, talking some more or showing us some more evidence of bias on what we're talking about here which, uh, in context to the giants. So who knows? I, I don't know. There's a lot of suppression and there's a lot of things that we are not supposed to know about our 
past, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but do we know about the? Could it be possible that we could find something about this in Akashic records, which is uh, something in the New Age? Uh, um, you know, all records where we can recollect our memory. Uh, I, I've never been in, in the astral plane or haven't visited uh, this dimension, or so I cannot conclude for myself if it's, if it's real or not. But supposedly, the, the, the history there can still be known openly. Because and also there are some people with clairvoyance that do um, like some readings upon like what our history could have been, like Rudolf Steiner did, and there's yeah. some other people. So like when Casey. we're talking about the Akashic records, I guess you're talking about people like Edgar Casey. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, 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 channelers. So, so for I, I guess for anybody that doesn't know, what my understanding is of the Akashic records is that it's basically a record of everything that has ever happened to anybody anywhere in the whole of history uh, that is available not in a physical way not like a library that you can visit but is uh, available in a certain mental state that once you reach a certain like like state of being that you actually have access to all this information however sometimes you only get a sneak peek and you come back with like a little a little few bits of information about it I think that if that is real, then all the records of any type of interaction we've had with giant beings would be in there. But there are so many things that point towards the existence of these beings in um, all over the world. Like literally, it doesn't matter which continent, every continent, you'll find, you'll find signs of this. And I think for me, I always questioned whether those hieroglyphs in Egypt that depict the pharaohs as literally like five times as tall as all the other humans. I've always wondered, you know, you know what, maybe, maybe that is not an exaggeration. Maybe these people were actually as tall. These statues that were built of these people, maybe they were actually that big because they keep representing them like that. And there should be a reason for it. Like, why, why, why would everybody be so tiny that like, that doesn't make sense. Why, why would you do that? Uh, Mm, Unless there is some type of reason. Yeah. Well, now we're going into the more literal side, uh, but we shouldn't become like literalists and say that all these things are literally true. uh, If we don't have the the evidence supported, but another interpretation you could get out of this is, and what we talked about in the previous uh, part uh, and the first part, is that we can interpret it uh, symbolically. So maybe if they depict all these giant beings, that they were depicting them uh, because they were like grandiose, you know, they, they represent something uh, which is beyond our grasp, which is some grandiose in, in comparison to ourselves that they mm-hmm. depicted them like that. So I think like you can, you can see this in different layers. You can see one yes. is, could be a literal one. There, there could have been giants. I, I don't discard this or I don't, I don't put it off. Uh, but another one could be that it is just a symbolic representation. And, and that's what I mean earlier with like giants doesn't need to be that they were real giants, even though, and you're pointing towards like there is some evidence supported and i also believe and i've also researched some on this but it's still like i haven't seen the bones for myself and uh i did do a lot of research but uh, a lot of these things they are not really uh um you cannot uh solidify you cannot uh 
you evidence know? is uh, evidence is either either gone, either either not there or or made to disappear. Yeah, I do and know that there is like hundreds of articles in newspapers worldwide of people finding these bones, but then there's never the evidence for the bones. Like it's like literally like as soon as you mention that the men in black show up or something like that. Yeah. They flash everybody and then they uh, take the bones. Mm. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I, I do think that I like your idea of it being a, a metaphorical giants. Yeah. Uh, like, like Steve Jobs would be a tech giant, I guess, then. It's yeah, not like yeah. he was really that tall, but yeah. people can take on a bigger than, larger than life kind of uh, existence through their actions, through their knowledge levels. Um, but I would love to maybe add a little bit to your research because there is a few locations on earth that have connections with physical giants, like giants that were supposedly like really tall human beings. And um, one of them is the Yonaguni Plateau under, under underwater city that's off the coast in Japan. You might've heard of this place. Yeah, with like uh, lines intersecting into the giant's blocks and... Uh, it's not just lines intersecting giant blocks. That's like the, 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 the highest quality pictures. They do depict that, but it is a massive complex that uh, like Graham Hancock, one of the writers on ancient civilizations, he has done many, many dives, like dozens of dives to explore this entire city that's underwater. Uh, and, and, and it's... And it's definitely not natural in the way it was formed that is very clear if you say it's a natural occurrence you're being too dismissive because those people have not swam there underwater from what i've gathered it's a city built for people that are at a much larger scale than us yeah. so like staircases that are built into the wall are, are for somebody that's like much much bigger and then there's this other location which is very rarely discussed like I, I spend some time on the internet and i'm looking at the giant videos nephilim stuff but uh let me think i'm, I'm gonna make sure i say this right because it's this location in northern siberia and russia um it's called uh, the gornaya shoria megaliths okay. and it's this city i think it is like a collection of megaliths but then the megaliths they all look like the remnants of some ancient civilization that's like more ancient than anything that we can think of i'm not talking about like atlantis i'm talking these people must have been as tall as skyscrapers to build these structures hmm. well i i use a website called uh, megaliths.org and yeah. there's like a map on there and they show like a lot of different uh sites uh, but the, the but the thing is we're talking about mythology and the interesting yes. thing about mythology is that you know you talk about history but you know there's so much and uh, we also can talk about the psychology there's different things that tie in with mythology uh, and that's also the ancient view like all these different subjects seemingly different subjects are all tied in together and i think that's very important to mention uh are you familiar with the work of michael cremo no doesn't ring a bell well, Michael Cremo uh, is, is a, I don't know if he's an independent archaeologist or just an archaeologist, but uh, let's just call him a researcher that uh, does a lot of research into uh, the ancient civilizations as well. And uh, he puts these civilizations back to millions of years. 
And there's like, he studies a lot of anomalies. So anomalies are like, uh, you know, if you create a scientific uh, grouping of, of a, a, a concrete theory, you exclude a lot of uh, information that tells a different story. And this is what he investigates. So he finds a astronaut's shoe uh, pressure point on, on, onto certain where like, a, you know, lava used to be. And so, you know, millions of years, it was dated back to 500 million years ago. And they found this, this pressure over like a shoe of an astronaut. So those are like anomalies, but this is not pointing towards necessarily to a civilization because you maybe can uh, explain it otherwise or time travel or whatever. You can get multiple things. Uh, but he, what reminded me of what you were telling, there was one story of a civilization being... I think it's close to one of the Caribbean islands and it's now on the water. Uh, but if you look on, I don't know if you can see it on Google oh, Maps. The but Bimini Highway. Yeah, it could be. But, uh, Bermuda. Yeah, this is like no, a, it's not. This I, don't, I don't think it's in the Bermuda. It's no, just, the Bahamas. I'm so sorry. It's the Bahamas where you have yeah. this underwater road you can actually see from Google Earth. And the road is built out of rocks that are like the size of what, like an American school bus? And they're just put in this row and it's like, it's like literally like a highway on the, on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and Michael. also I, hard to explain. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think like so Michael Cremo is a person that is really far ahead in this, uh, but uh, people, a lot of people won't take him seriously. But I would- What does he say about this? Uh, well, he puts, uh, and he has a lot of evidence uh, to support that civilizations go back uh, even further uh, because he has the opportunity to study a lot of these anomalous uh, objects from, uh, uh, you know, these uh, museums that, that collect all these uh, objects. And he studies all these objects and, and, and uh, sometimes people date these uh, things back so far that they, uh, when they put it out on a scientific journey uh, jour journal, they just uh, they don't get uh, published because uh, it's just too. It doesn't fit. That's the problem with archaeology. You know, if you make a discovery and your conclusion does not fit in to a gap uh, of the story that all other archaeologists have made, if it kind of like tricks up that whole idea or it just does not confirm what we already know, it just gets tossed aside. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and there's like one thing I really want to say because uh, I, I went to Peru and there's like these Nazca lines, right? You probably familiar yes. with the Nazca lines. Absolutely. Well, I, they yeah, just found a new one last week, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when I went there, there were like 170 just found. Uh, so there's still, and, and this new one is now covered, but there's a lot more that we still haven't uncovered there yet. The site is massive. And I stayed there for about a week and I worked together with an astronomer and he does these presentations like every week telling the tourists that come there about, you know, all this information about the Nazca lines. I did translation for him. And, but, uh, and he gave me the presentation as well. I was sitting there one evening and then he sent away the rest of the tourists. Uh, after the, you know, what we normally do, the presentation is over, the tourists sent away. And then he said, Jasper, 
I got one thing to show you. And he showed me this, this, this figure uh, of, of a Nazca line um, or Nazca figure that, that showed a alien or at least an extraterrestrial. And it had like a like big this, head one with the big eyes or what? Yeah, like a typical, you know, like a gray, like a alien. gray alien with like three toes and, and three fingers. And yeah, I was filming it. And I was astonished. I was trying to research it on the internet, but couldn't find anything. But he said that they, they didn't put out this, this uh, Nazca line because it was too controversial. And a lot of people, they have different theories on how the Nazca lines are formed. Uh, I would like to talk about that. But I don't know if we're drifting off with mythology, but... Um, yeah, no, it's okay. I would love to hear your explanation of Nazca lines because why do you think anybody would create this giant giant piece of art that's sometimes like miles wide uh in the surface of the planet but then the only way that you can actually see it is to be higher than the clouds looking down to the surface well yeah okay that that's in in, in that's mostly true but there's a lot you can still see from the from the mountains so it doesn't explain uh, explain away all these different uh, uh line and the purposes um but like you said there's still a lot that you can they're so massive that you cannot see them from a mountain and that you have to see them from above so you're making something that, that the process of making these nasca lines is not very difficult so that's not a big uh big mystery there but to really check what you build you really have to have this view and if you don't have a mountain nearby and then how could you check this um so people have different theories on this um i i still dwell upon like different theories myself as well but uh one of those two are one of them they, they use their uh a psychedelic substance in in the in the desert there called wachuma or san pedro um, I talked upon this in the second episode uh, with uh, about the Andean cosmovision, and um, but with this substance, it is common, or it can, if you do it in in a certain initiated way, with with a it's not called a shaman, but uh, they have like a spiritual leader, uh, and they uh, can guide you and and can get you into the state where you can tr get out of your body. Uh, we know this as out-of-body experience. And for me, that could be a one, one piece to the puzzle on how they could see it from above. So they can take this substance and they can check if they did it right. Like they did it in all these uh, things they didn't build for nothing. It was all like ceremonial. So this would probably be part of the ceremony. Uh, and, but there's other theories and uh, they... Probably didn't, I think they didn't build them for themselves. So they could have built for extraterrestrials. And that's why they depicted one uh, on there. Um, so that's why I say like the, I, there's different theories. And there's also uh, when I went there and you, we talked in a previous episode about labyrinths. There was yes. one labyrinth there. And uh, I've shown you the pictures. Uh, these uh, labyrinths, I went there at night with a friend. And uh, he had a professional camera. And if you made a professional camera, the, 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 uh, a picture with a flash, you could see all these lights there. Mm, so in their tradition, they call this the ancestors uh, or the spirit mountains they also uh, represent. And 
these could be the there's some videos on youtube that you can see that they built these modern crop circles this is all very high hypothetical but um that could be that they uh guided or that they were the intertwined or that they had some connection with these nazca lines but i've seen other theories but i i think these that the theories that i just mentioned are the mm -hmm. most uh yeah solid yeah they, they, they make sense like i can understand certain uh drawings they're like they're made at a certain angle or so you can see or maybe they're on the on the ground next to a mountain so when you climb on top of the mountain you can see them go looking down but then some of them are so big and they're in the middle of nowhere. For some reason, the people that were making those Nazca line depictions, they must have believed that somebody up there was looking at them. Because why would you create a picture for somebody in the sky unless you believe there's somebody in the sky? Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense if they think that their God is in the sky and is looking at it. And that that's that would be a great reason to make a picture is like you can communicate directly with your god but it seems like it would be very difficult to coordinate a design like that if you cannot check yourself hmm. Hmm. yeah i guess that would be, explain why the drawings are so simple why they don't contain a lot of detail uh yeah and a lot of these patterns there are connected to astronomy as well but not all of them and so there are, it's not, uh, you know, you cannot explain Alaska lines in a few sentences, you know, and it's, that's also a part why they, they still are a mystery and we're still finding new ones and we cannot decode them all. Uh, but, oh. you know, it's, it's very fascinating. Uh, the, the it is. Lines. It is. It's very fascinating. So, yeah, I, 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 I like, I think that is really important nowadays that when we don't understand something, that we don't just immediately start yelling aliens, you know? Yeah, exactly. People have done a really good job at making that look like a very stupid argument, even though it definitely isn't. Uh, I think that it's helpful to look for alternative solutions or reasons or, or what, you know, motives. Why, why would people do this kind of stuff? Yeah. But I would love to then really quickly mention the Frisian Terps, the hills in the, in the, in the landscape from our hometowns that, also represent the zodiacs from astrology but only when viewed from like very high up so you have to be at the height of an airplane or a satellite to be able to then look at these hills in the dutch landscape and connect them to form the zodiac signs how would you coordinate that how yeah. would you be able to plan that out and make it literally fit perfectly uh if supposedly back then all we had was some bronze tools and maybe a campfire at night yeah yeah i don't know like what, what do you mean like how we're we supposed to do that like it, 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 i i just think that when we study our mythology it's very important to realize that our history is very incomplete and also very inaccurate yes. and it just opens up everything to being questioned. Yeah, and I think a part of, uh, an important key to deciphering these things is using our imagination. So um, our history is very, and that is also why I love history since I was a kid. It's always sparked my, my imagination. And the same thing with mythology, it sparked my imagination in there. Like it just 
meant to awake something that is within ourselves. It's all these stories, all these different stories, they all are part of us. And that's why they're important to study because we can relate to them and we can learn from them and we can apply them in a such a way in our, in our own lives. And that's why we don't have to jump onto that, that they're all literal or that they're all like only psycholo- psychological. Yeah, but we no, have to see them all. They're the archetypes, like you said, and I'm not talking about the Jungian ones. So I would say like they're. Oh, shit. Oh, you're uh, cutting away. That's a shame because it just got very interesting. She said the, uh, that, uh, about the archetypes. Um, yeah, it is uh, very interesting how the archetypes play into our minds. Uh, I think uh, we have to wrap it up because uh, his connection is uh, getting away. Um, I think we discussed a lot about mythology and we can talk about mythology a lot more uh if we talk about other mythological stories uh but i would recommend people just to check out uh a lot upon this because it's very fascinating on all these different mythological stories and how our psychological state is connected to this um so uh, one book i would recommend is the Book of Symbols. Um, let me check who the writer is. Uh, the writer is uh, Tashin. And in this book, they have a, a, like a dictionary of all the different symbols. Um, these symbols you can use to really discern and, and learn from all these experiences that you have and also from these ancient mythological stories that what they could they mean and what could they mean to you because for everyone it's different it's not just you know if i read these stories i get something completely different from the stories than you have um so be very flexible and also see that these symbols are uh, also presented in your own life um, I can make one example of this. I had these owls following me when I was in my own hometown, like a f- two months ago before I went traveling and they just kept following me. And this was for me very interesting. Like, you know, they were flying towards me. and I was like, whoa, what the hell? And I've never experienced something like that. There were two white owls doing that. And to me, that is just fascinating. Like, why are they... Uh, why are they following me? And so to really learn from this experience and from its depth, I would say that they, uh, you know, are something magical and I should apply the magical way of living into my life. That's what awakened me from this experience. All right, cheers. Apologize for my connection here. Yeah, Yeah, I, I... you were cutting away and you were talking about archetypes and I was uh, tying in a little bit in because uh, we're getting uh, close to two hours and I told people that, you know, uh, our life are these messages of symbolism and all mythological stories. They, they are part of us, you know, they, they speak to us into our lives. So people need to learn yes. from these experience in a symbolic uh, sense, you know, and 
So don't read these stories and think that, that, that they don't have anything to do with you. But uh, be very rich in symbolism and be very uh, aware of, 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 of their messages. And uh, is there something you would like yeah. to add um, to our convers great conversation? Yeah, about I mean, mythology? like, I, I would love... Because a lot of things... I would like, yes. A lot of things we didn't, didn't uh, mention, you know. There's a lot of different mythology, mythological stories. We talked a little bit about the Nazca line. So there's a lot of things that we still oh, didn't mention. Goodness. Well, most of Earth's history falls in the, in, the, in, the, in the category of mythology. So we could have talked about anything. I think something that people should look into is the flood myth. Really, uh, it, it, can, it can really be for a lot of people a good entryway into learning uh, about ancient civilizations because the flood myth is not just something that happens in the Bible with Noah, but is apparently a global phenomenon that took place where uh there was a flood and it did wash away a lot of civilization and it actually was a long time ago for like what like twelve and a half thousand years ago so it might have been at the same time as this asteroid that hit us mythology kind of turns real stories into fantastic stories and ensures that they get passed down uh, over time but if i could give the audience one message is that aside from enjoying these stories however they're kind of retold over and over again uh you know nowadays everybody's into the superhero movies it's definitely you know a great entertainment but it is also worth looking for a hidden meaning and yeah. when you're looking for a hidden meaning you'll always find one so have that in mind, know that whatever you're going to find, like question it again and again and again, but never take something like that at face value. When we're talking about mythology, we're talking about giants and we're talking about people with supernatural abilities, try to see what else they could be trying to say with the story. Because words are just words, but they're also magic. Yeah. And uh, they, 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 that's, that's, the, that's the, the power that mythology had on me really yeah. woke up this this really this thirst for a world that's more exciting than the one that we're confronted with every single day yeah yeah one thing i would like to add like uh the difference between symbolic communication and, and literal communication if i say something literally then it just means the same for everyone else but if i say yes. it symbolically and i speak to you directly so if i say you know all these mythological stories or if i speak in a symbolic or metaphorical sense then i speak to someone directly and so you can teach in this way i can talk to you in a symbolic sense or i can talk about and sharing a story but you will get something different from that story than i would and someone else would get something from that story that you did so Absolutely. that is also when you when you got cut off uh, from the internet sorry about that guys but uh i was saying is like for everyone it's different so that's the beauty about symbology and that's the beauty about these mythological stories so let's uh it teaches about ourselves yes exactly and that's what it's all about so people thank you for watching uh be sure to like and subscribe um hoping to do another one next week with uh, a friend that i met in peru uh talking about art and about healing with art 
and yeah it will be a great episode hopefully and um, if not then we'll do something else uh, it's all about improvisation life so thank you for watching again and uh, thank you Chair, for your time and uh, hope to see you soon again it's my pleasure bless bless <laughs> love and life yes